right, let's, let's take some time to pray together. We'll dive into God's Word. Father, thank you that we can come before you right now, and um, Lord, we have worshipped you in song. We have worshipped you through the Lord's Supper, and God, we want to worship you as we linger over your word right now. Lord, when we think of you, you are the exalted one, Lord Jesus, and you're indescribable, Lord. And the thought, God, of taking up your word, and the thought, Lord, of taking up your word and expounding your glories through your word, God, it seems absolutely impossible. So, Holy Spirit, we need your help. Please come, Holy Spirit, and give us ears to hear, open our eyes to the truth. Give us hearts, God, that exalt in you. You are worthy. You alone are worthy. None like you, Lord. God, we worship you not just for an event, not just for an event that happened in the past, as glorious as that event was that you were risen from the dead. But we worship you, God, because you're alive forevermore. God, that it means that even now, even now, Lord, you're seated on your throne. That you hear our songs, you hear our prayers. Well, God, hear our worship as we meditate on your word. Hear our worship. That worship in the heart, God, that no man can see, but you see it. God, please help us in this time. And we praise you, God, that we can come to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a man uh, named John, also called the son of Zebedee. John was... uh, Really close to Jesus. Jesus even nicknamed he and his brother, nicknamed them the Sons of Thunder. Pretty cool nickname. And uh, he's one of the 12 disciples, also known as the Apostle John. He walked with Jesus, ate with Jesus, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, I'm sure. He knew him really well. He was very close to Christ. In fact, John, within the 12, John was a part of that inner three that always seemed to get to go a little bit farther with Jesus, a little bit farther in the Garden of Gethsemane to hear him pray, a little bit farther to where they saw the transfiguration, James and Peter and John. John was a part of that inner three. And honestly, it seems like this is the disciple that experienced the most intimacy and affectionate love towards Christ, maybe more than any other disciple. He's called the disciple whom Jesus loved. So John is just this disciple. He was the first one of the disciples to gaze into the empty tomb. You remember that? He outran Peter there. He gazed into that empty tomb. 
John was a writer of scripture. He wrote John and first, second, third John and, and also, also Revelation. But I want to take you to a place in John's life that I believe is the most terrifying moment of his life. And at the same time, the most comforting moment of his life. Go with me to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. Now try to picture John as an older man now. Because of his faith, he's been exiled to the Isle of Patmos. And there, his old intimate friend, Jesus, reveals himself to John. Now we're going to read Revelation chapter 1, verse 17 and 18, right after John saw Jesus in all his glory. Perk up a little bit, one day you might see him this way. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, for I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death in Hades. So I said the most terrifying moment of his life is he sees Jesus and it says he falls on his face as dead. And yet the most comforting moment of his life is a glorified Savior takes his right hand and puts it on him and says, fear not. And then Jesus speaks five things about himself. Five self-declarations. He says, I'm the first and the last. He says, I'm the living one. He says, I died. He says, behold, I'm alive forevermore. And number five, I have the keys of death in Hades. Now, I want to look at this first phrase in verse 17. It says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. <laughs> what? He fell, he sees Christ and just hits his face as if he's a dead man. Now, this is how men responded to God. This is how men responded to Yahweh all throughout history when God revealed His presence to them. We see it with Moses in Exodus 34. God reveals Himself to Moses and it says, Moses made haste and bowed down to the ground. We see it with Joshua in Joshua 5 as God reveals Himself to Joshua and it says, Joshua fell with his face to the ground. And he says, what does my Lord say to his servant? And he began to worship. We see it with Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 1, as Ezekiel sees God and falls with his face to the ground, and the Holy Spirit has to pick him up. We see this over and over and over again. And here we see the man Christ Jesus. He reveals himself to his intimate friend. And the response is he falls on his face like a dead man. Now notice what John didn't do. John, John didn't say, hey old buddy, I ain't seen you in a while. He didn't shake Jesus' hand. There's an old song that 
says the next hand you shake could be the hand of the Savior. No, it won't. <clears throat> he didn't shake his hand. He said his, he fell down like a dead man. A holy panic seizes this man and he falls down on his face before glorified, risen Christ. Why? Why? Well, you remember when he walked on earth, his glory was veiled. He got little moments of miracles and moments like the transfiguration where he kind of gives them a sneak peek of his glory and his majesty. But while he walked on earth with these disciples, his glory was veiled. And now what we see is that glory is no longer veiled. That glory is revealed for all to see. And John sees him and it terrifies him in the moment. And he trembles in the presence of his old intimate friend. And there he is, bowed down before Christ. I want you to think for a minute about what he saw when he saw Jesus. Revelation chapter 1, you're right there. Verse 17 says, when I saw him. Well, what did he see? What did he see? Go back to verse, seven, go back to verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. He saw a man there, but not any man, not just any man. He saw one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and His voice was like the roar of many waters. And in His right hand He held seven stars. From His mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and His face was like the sun shining in His strength. Think about what He saw that day. He saw glorified Christ. He speaks, and it's like Niagara Falls. It's it's His sun shining and blinding this man as His face shines like the sun. He saw risen and glorified, ascended Christ. And it says here that John falls on his face as if dead. Friends, every one of you, now you say, I believe in Jesus. You say, I follow Jesus. It's very important to know what comes to your mind? What's in your mind? What's in your heart when you say Jesus? When you say I believe in Jesus, when you say I follow Jesus, what comes to your mind when you say Jesus? Because here's a fact. Petty views of Jesus condemn people to hell. Little pitiful petty views of Jesus condemn people to hell. So who do you say that Jesus is? Who is this man? Jesus. And what I want us to do is I want us to examine Jesus, His own words here in Revelation 1, verse 17 and 18. I want us to examine those five things that He said about Himself, these self-descriptions, and answer that question, who is Jesus? Now, we can break up these five terms that Jesus use, uses in Revelation 1, 17, and 18, we can break them up into three categories. 
Number one, first category, this man is God. This man is God. And I'm getting that from the first two phrases where he says, I'm the first and the last, and I'm the living one. Those are titles of divinity. So this man is God, number one. Number two, this God is man. This God is man, and I get that from the phrase, I died. I died, and we'll come back to that. This God is man. So number one, this man is God. Number two, this God is man. And number three, this God-man is risen and reigning. And I get that from the last two phrases. Behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Now, as we read through this and we think about who Jesus is in these three categories, there's three impossible feats that are being put before us here. Three impossible things are being put before us. Number one, how can God die? How can God die? And yet that's what we read here. It's impossible that God would die. And yet the first and the last just said, I died. It's an impossible thing. The second impossible thing is this. How can a man rise from the dead? How can a man rise from the dead, especially after being buried under the wrath of God? How can a man rise from the dead? And yet, that's what we read. I died, and yet, behold, I'm alive forevermore. And third impossible feat is, how can sinful man be delivered from death and hell? How can sinful man be delivered from death and hell? Remember, that's what Peter said. Peter looked at Jesus and said, Well, Jesus, who then can be saved? Who can be saved? Jesus And Jesus said, with man, it is impossible. Man's salvation is impossible. Except the next thing Jesus says is, but with God, all things are possible. And so what we're presented here is our salvation is impossible, but there's one who has the keys of death and Hades. So let's take it in these three categories about who is Jesus. Number one, this man is God. This man is God. And I mentioned those first two phrases there in verse 17. Starts there. Jesus says, Fear not, behold, I am the first and the last. I'm the first and the last. And the living one. These are titles of divinity. I'm the first and the last. And I'm the living one. And, and these titles are being ascribed to a man. Remember, John turned and he saw one like a son of man. The next phrase, he saw one who died like a man. This is a man who is saying, I'm the first and the last. And I'm the living one. Listen to this from Isaiah 44. He also uses the term the first and the last to speak about Yahweh. Can you imagine Jesus saying these things about Himself? Isaiah 44, I'm going to read verse 6 through 8. Listen to this. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Imagine Christ saying that. I'm the first and the last, and besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Imagine Christ saying it. Who is like me? 
Let Him proclaim it. Let Him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. There's none like me. Let them declare what's to come. I declare what is to come. Let them do it. They can't. There is no God like me. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. Jesus says, I'm the first and the last. Look at Isaiah 48. If you're not already there, just listen. Isaiah 48, verse 12. Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel whom I called. I am He. I am the first and I am the last. What do you mean? My hand laid the foundation of the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. And Jesus says, I'm the first and the last. I laid the foundations of the earth. And what about this phrase, I'm the living one? You remember the phrases, if you, if you look through your Old Testament, really throughout your Bible, you got this title of God. He is the living God. Over and over again, He's the living God. He's the, he's the living God. Moses used it, used it in Deuteronomy 5.26. He says, the voice of the living God. Speaking about Yahweh. Joshua used it in Joshua 3.10. He says, the living God is among you. Speaking about Yahweh. David used it in 1 Samuel 17.26. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? It's mentioned all over the Psalms, like Psalm 42, verse 2. My soul thirsts for the living God. Speaking about God Almighty, the Lord. The living God. Jeremiah used it. Jeremiah 10.10. The Lord is the true God. He is the living God. Now what's being communicated here in the living God? What's being said? It's not merely that He's alive. It's not just merely that He's alive. But he's being called the living God because he is the living. He is the source of all life. He's the only self-sustaining source of life. Think about this. All human life, all human life gets its life from the source. And if the source were cut off, then all human life would perish in a moment, not God. God gets His life from no one. He stands alone and He needs no one. He is the living God. All animal life gets its life from the source. If the source is cut off, all animal life perishes in a moment because it's all dependent on God. But God is the source of life. He's the living God. He's dependent on no one. All plant life gets its life from the source. If the source is cut off, all plant life withers in a moment, but not God. He's the source of life. It flows from Him as the very origin of life. And He gives life to all things. He's the living God. That's what's being communicated. Our God is the living God. Now you imagine, Revelation 1.18, that a man takes this title onto himself. He says, I'm the living one. I'm the first and the last and I am the living one. 
He's not merely saying, I'm alive. He's not speaking about his resurrection yet because he's about to say, I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. He's saying, I am the living one. I'm the source of life. All things live through me. You remember it in John chapter 1? You don't have to flip there, but John chapter 1, verse 1 through 4, speaks about Christ as the Word. And it says this about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He, so the Word is a He. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him and without Him was not anything made that was made. The Word, Christ, is the Creator. And then it says, in Him was life. He's the living one. In Him was life and the life was the light of men. Jesus is the living one. He's the first and the last. He is the living one. This man is God. That's what you should walk away with. This man is God. Now what do you do with this claim? What do you make of this claim? If you reject it, it's a very important claim. If you reject it, you go to hell. But if you accept it and you adore it, it changes everything. Absolutely everything changes. You mean this man is God? This man is the first and the last? This man is the living God? It changes everything. Absolutely everything. Now, interesting fact here. We're about to transition from this man is God to this God is man. You imagine Satan thinking about what can I attack? What can, what can I go after to in the, during the time of the early church? What can I attack that would undercut Christ and undercut His church? What can I go after? And he could go after the divinity of Christ, that He is not God. He could go after the humanity of Christ, that He is not man. Both would be detrimental. If He's not man, He can't die. If He's not God, His death doesn't mean anything. He could go after either one. And what does Satan choose to go after? And it seems like from reading our New Testament, interesting fact here, you read your New Testament, and he decides, I'm going to go after his humanity, that, that that man, Christ, was not really a man. Isn't that an interesting fact? It's like he's sitting around looking at the other demons going, you know, we'll never convince him he's not God. Did you see his miracle? Did you see him rise from the dead? I mean, we cannot convince them that he's not God. We'll never be able to do that. We better go after his humanity. And all through the New Testament, you see attacks on his humanity, which brings us to that second category. <coughs> Excuse me. That this God is man. Now I'm pulling that from the phrase right here in our passage where he says, I died. I died. It's in verse 18. I died. Now think about that. The, I'm the living one, the, the living God, the source of all life, died. How'd that happen? How does God die? Now, imagine you're the head of a conspiracy to kill God. You're the leader of the conspiracy to kill God. How do you do it? He didn't have a physical body, so you can't shoot him or stab him. What do you do? He didn't have a physical heart. You can't, you can't give him you know, heart-stopping drugs, right? He doesn't need food, so you can't starve him. He doesn't have lungs, so you can't smother him. What do you do? 
How do you kill God? This, but this verse says, the first and the last, the living one, has died. Jesus says, I died. So what's being assumed here is that when the first and last says, I died, what's being assumed is the incarnation. And the incarnation is just a fancy way of saying, he became flesh. That the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, that, that God the Son actually added human nature to His divine nature. He took on flesh. He took on flesh. Think about that. It's beautiful that God Almighty would take human nature onto His divine nature. It's mysterious. Because Jesus is not 50% God and 50% man. He's fully and truly God, never lost any of His godness, and yet He's fully and truly man. It's beautiful and it's mysterious. The incarnation. God took on flesh. Now somebody might be saying, wait a minute, it's, it's not Christmas. It's Easter. Why are we talking about the incarnation? Why, isn't that Christmas stuff? Why are we talking about the incarnation? It's Easter. This is about the resurrection, right? I heard one preacher connect these things beautifully together like this. <clears throat> He said, without the resurrection, the incarnation is incomplete. And without the incarnation, the resurrection is impossible. And I agree with that. So this phrase, he says, I die. Now, now I died. It, it, not only, it not only tells us that, that this God was a man, but it tells us why this God was a man. He became a man but why? Why, did, why was he incarnated? Why, why the incarnation? Why? So that he could die? God can't die. Only man can die. So he becomes a man that he might die. I want to read this first to you. In Hebrews chapter 2, it's verse 14, about why Jesus became flesh and blood. Hebrews 2.14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. That's talking about humans like me and you. Guess what we have? Flesh and blood. They can die. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself, speaking about Jesus, He Himself likewise partook of the same things. He took on flesh and blood. God took human nature onto Himself. Why? That through Death. He took on flesh that he might die. That through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death. That is the devil. Look at verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. That means taking on flesh like us. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Why? Why did He become man? Why is this God man? That He might die. And that He might be the propitiation for our sins. Meaning His death turns away the wrath of God. The wrath of God sits atop our heads. We deserve an outpouring of the wrath of God and the burning hell forever. We deserve it. He comes as a human. 
And that wrath is poured out on Him instead so that we don't have to experience it. Why did He take on flesh? Why did He become human? Why is this God man? That He might die. That He might be our propitiation. That He might be our wrath bearer. So this God is man. Now what do you do with this claim? What do you do with both of these claims? If this man is God and this God is man, what do you do with these claims? That He came in the flesh to die? That His death is your only hope? What do you do with this stuff? And if you reject it, you go to hell. But if you accept it and adore it, it changes everything. Imagine this. You really believe, you really believe that Jesus of Nazareth who walked on earth, that, that that one is truly God and truly man and truly died for sinners like me and you? It changes everything. It changes absolutely everything. Let's go to that third category. This God-man is risen and He's reigning. He's risen and He's reigning. I get that from these, these last two phrases in verse 18. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. He's risen. And I have the keys of death and Hades. He's reigning. He's risen and He's reigning. Let's start with Christ is risen. He's risen. He's alive forevermore. He's still the God-man. Uh, if you had in your mind that God took on flesh and then He did it for a short time and then He left this humanity and became God again, it's a false way to think about it. But rather, God took on flesh. He died. He's buried. He, ri he rises again as a human. He's still fully human, fully God. He's ascended on high and He's still the God-man. One of your own stock of your own humanity is in heaven. He's still the God-man, risen indeed. Robert Chapman, over a century ago, he said it like Robert Chapman was uh, known, by, no, known to uh, Charles Spurgeon as the saintliest man he ever knew. And Robert Chapman wrote a poem like this. Go and search the tomb of Jesus where the Lord of glory lay. Jesus is not there but risen and has borne all our sins away. It is finished. It is finished. Captive led captivity. Could not all our sins retain him? Prisoned in the guarded cave? These he blotted out in dying. By his cross he spoiled the grave. Oh, he's risen. Oh, he's risen. Yes, the Lord is risen indeed. He's the risen one. I died, and yet, behold, he says. I'm alive forevermore. Now, the resurrection of Jesus is of massive significance. We don't have time, nor the resources, nor am I able with these weak lips, this weak tongue, to tell you the significance of the resurrection of Jesus. But I'll give you just a few things. His resurrection carries evidential significance. Evidential significance significance, and here's what I mean. I mean, his, res his resurrection stands as evidence. It stands as proof. It stands as assurance. That's what his resurrection does. Think about it like this. Why, 
Why did the events of the resurrection unfold as they did? We get to read in the Gospels how the events of the resurrection unfolded. Why? Why did they unfold in that way? Well, it's because this is evidence. You get this from Acts 17, 31, where it says something about Christ, and it says, God has given assurance of these things, or proof of these things to all, by raising Him from the dead. The resurrection is the proof. Romans chapter 1, verse 4 says that Jesus is declared to be the Son of God. How do we know? Keep reading in Revelation, I mean Romans 1, 4, and it says, by the resurrection from the dead. His resurrection is evidence, and maybe you could just think about it like this. Just a couple questions. One, uh, why the empty tomb, and why is it open? Why, why was the stone rolled away from that empty tomb? Was the stone, why, why did it unfold that way? Was the stone rolled away to let Jesus out? We read, we read in John 20 right after the resurrection, he's like walking through walls and appearing in places. Was it really rolled away to let him out? Or was the stone rolled away so that the apostles and others could peer in and see it and go, nobody's there. <laughs> and figure out what happened here. What happened? This is evidence. This man has risen from the dead. Even the people that hated him, they said that that tomb was empty. If they wanted to squash Christianity, they only had to do one thing, produce the body. They had soldiers standing there to guard it. Just show them the body and you squash Christianity in its infant stages. And yet they couldn't. Why? Because the tomb's empty and God rolls the stone away to let everybody see it's evidence. Everything this man has said about himself is true. Or maybe a second question. Why so many post-resurrection appearances of Jesus? In other words, why didn't He just rise and immediately ascend on high? Why 40 days of Jesus showing Himself in post-resurrection appearances in a real body? Telling His disciples, touch me. I'm not a ghost. I'm a real person. I'm a real body. Why these post-resurrection appearances? So that people might have these witnesses to look to, these real credible witnesses that have seen Him risen from the dead. Men and women like the disciples that didn't even believe Him. Didn't even trust His resurrection. If they would have trusted it, they'd have been lined up there on the third day ready to see Him rise. But they were unbelieving. And God changes these men. Why? Because they saw an empty tomb and they saw Him walk on earth again. And you've got to decide, are these men credible or are they not? What about the 500 eyewitnesses that saw him? And at one time, Paul tells the Corinthian church, go ask them. This man's risen from the dead. So the resurrection of Jesus has evidential significance. Any, listen, any unbeliever in the room, I plead with you to look into the resurrection. Many have gone into that and come out Christians. Beware. Jesus' resurrection also carries spiritual significance. And man, we just don't have the time, do we? Spiritual significance of Jesus' resurrection. If He's risen, then He really is God's Son incarnate. He really is. Romans 1.4, declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. And if He really is the Son of God incarnate, then He really is our Lord. He's your Lord. 
Whether you're a Christian or not, he is, he is Lord to you. And He's your only hope. If He really is risen from the dead, if He was raised, <coughs> and He's raised for our salvation, the Scripture says that He was delivered up for our sins, and He, Romans 4.25, and He was raised for our justification. Jesus was raised from the dead so that we might be justified. You see, at the cross, Jesus said, it's finished. It's finished. And at the resurrection, God the Father says, amen. It's finished indeed. Through His resurrection, we're justified. And He was raised for our sanctification. Think about that. That if He is truly raised, think of the spiritual significance. If He's raised from the dead, it means He's alive now. I heard it on the radio once, and I hope you'll never say it. You know, back when Jesus was alive, horrible thing to say. False thing to say. That's the point. Jesus is alive. And if He's alive, and He is alive, Hebrews 7 says, He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He calls Him the great high priest who always lives to make intercession for His people. The reason you are going to be sanctified the reason you're going to make it to the very end, the reason you're going to persevere and be saved and go be with Him and not go to hell is because He's your great high priest who is alive and always lives to make intercession for you. He's the resurrected Christ. None like Him. And we could go on and on and on with this spiritual significance of His resurrection. But not only is He risen, but as I said, He's reigning. He's reigning. He's sitting in authority, reigning as king over this world right now. Some of you might say, wait a second, I thought he reigns as king whenever he returns. No, you're wrong. He's reigning as king right now. Matthew 28, 18, he's risen from the dead. He hasn't even ascended yet. And he says in Matthew 28, 18, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And right now he sits on his throne until all his enemies become his footstool. He's conquering his enemies as we speak. He's conquering their hearts. He's melting their hearts. And, and, and those that hate Christ are beginning to bow down to him as their Savior and as their Lord. And then in the end, all those that don't will bow the knee to Him even though they don't want to. But He's reigning right now. And what it says here in Revelation 1.18, it mentions His authority to reign specifically over death in Hades. Death is that last enemy Dustin was talking about a moment ago. Hades is reference to the world of the dead here. Death and the world of the dead. And it says here, Jesus has the keys to death in Hades. He has the keys. Keys represent authority. He has the keys. He opens death in Hades as He pleases. He closes death in Hades as He pleases. He has power to condemn you to death in Hades. He alone has the power to deliver you from that place. It says He has the keys of death and Hades. Reminds me of James 4.12. Speaking of Christ, listen to James 4.12.
There's only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and destroy. He alone has the keys of death and Hades. That's Jesus, okay? Jesus has been put before us in his word. This man is God. Number one, he's the first, the last, the living one. Number two, this God is man. He, was, he became flesh and he died. Number three, this God-man is risen and reigning. Behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Remember I mentioned the three impossible feats that were accomplished in Christ. Well, they were. They were accomplished in Jesus. How can God die? He became man and died. Christ accomplished that impossible feat. The second one I said was, how can a man rise from the dead? Christ did it. Death couldn't hold him. You imagine the strongest enemy, death, was trying to hold him in that grave. All the sin of the world piled on him in the grave. Roll the stone over the grave. Put the seal and the wax on the grave. Put all the soldiers by the grave. All the demons got their shoulders leaned against the stone, but they can't hold him in there. And the third impossible feat, how can sinful man be delivered from death and hell? Only through the one that's got the keys. God said, it's impossible with man, except with God, all things are possible. And so here come Christ, who made a way. Now, there's just one phrase left in Revelation 1, 17-18 that we haven't meditated on, and I want us to close by meditating on this one last phrase. <coughs> Excuse me. And it's right here. You imagine John's there. Imagine, can you imagine John there? He's trembling. He's terrified. He's trembling before glorified, risen Christ, his old intimate friend. There he is, trembling. And look right here in verse 17. But he, find it, B-U-T right here, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not. And he goes on with his description. Here's the phrase. He's trembling there before Christ. He's terrified. And he feels the touch of the Savior. But he put his right hand on me. And he said, fear not. Can you imagine that? Just try, try to imagine that for just a moment, okay? Now, you remember earlier I said that puny views of Jesus lead people to hell. Okay? I said that, and it's true. But also, we should have puny views of Christ, but also, our Christ is not, our God is not a heartless tyrant either. And that view of Christ will also lead people to hell. But you try to imagine this, how, how beautiful, what a demonstration of His grace. But He laid His right hand on me, and He said, fear not. Try to imagine that. The one who, verse 16, says, He holds the stars in His right hand. Puts the stars down and puts a 
touch of tenderness on the one that he loves while he's trembling in fear. And he says, fear not. Can you imagine that about the Savior? <laughs> the one whose very presence sends fear into men's souls. The one who's going to return one day burning like an oven and he's going to set his enemies ablaze. The one that takes his right hand and can uproot mountains. And yet he takes that hand at the one he loves, the trembling one, and he puts a hand on him. A tender touch of love and says, fear not. Imagine that voice. That verse 15 in the same chapter says his voice is like the sound of roaring waters. It's like Niagara Falls. When, this, when, he, when he opens his mouth, it's like a sword. It's like thunder. It cracks the cedars. It shakes the wilderness. That's his voice. And yet he softens that voice to a gentle word of comfort and says to the one that he loves, fear not. Fear not. I want you to see that it's such a sweet, sweet, beautiful, glorious view of Christ. And then I want you to ask yourself this. Is he not worthy of worship? Ought, ought we not to follow this Christ with all our heart and soul? The one who is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, who was and is and is to come, the one who died, the one who's alive forevermore, the one who has the keys of death and hell, the one that's going to destroy all of his enemies, the one that hates sin, is going to punish forever, those that don't come to him, and yet the one that softens his voice and puts a gentle touch of tender love and gentle whisper in their ear and says, fear not. I'm the one. I'm the one. I'm the first and the last that laid down my life for you, and I'm alive forevermore. Don't you think we should follow him? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this revelation of Christ. And uh, God, when we read these things, and then we think about our weak and insufficient worship, God, and our weak and insufficient obedience, in our weak and insufficient service to you, Lord, we want, we want to worship you more fully. We want to serve you more devoutly, God. We want to obey you with all our hearts and, and souls, God. When we see this of who you are, help us, God. Oh, Lord, for a thousand tongues to sing our great Redeemer's praise. You're glorious, Lord. Get from our hearts the worship you that you deserve. In Jesus' name, amen.